Nick! Steve, how you doing? I'm all right, mate. How are oh you? Oh, my God. This is quite it's weird. It's weird. I'm seeing you in three dimensions. Your pointy face. It's the first time we've met up. This feels odd. I'm it just ignoring your insults. It feels like it feels like quite an early date. I'm feeling a little bit... Yeah, I know I'm you feeling mean. a little bit... Uh, are you going like to let me take you home later? ...overawed frightened of you. Like, <laughs> like a bit nervous. Sorry, right, I'll be you're all in three dimensions you're wearing wolves colors uh, yeah. as well especially for you black I think and you've gold lost weight mate i have lost a bit of weight yeah that's because you've been eating chicken and broccoli every day well that was for january but yeah were you still eating chicken and no, broccoli? no i'm eating, no, I'm eating more, more more oh you'll just pile now. it all back on there yeah exactly yeah. less carbs but more food anyway it's nice to be here listeners so steve and i've got a new kind of um plan for today or this podcast and what we're going to do i mean at the moment it's a beautiful late beautiful sunny day in late april and i've come up on the train today steve haven't i we you we have and we're just we're sat around in the middle of a sunny city our nation's capital and what we thought we'd do is go for a wander to some specific sites and talk about some kind of geotagged science just do some science chat yeah. and that, that way we can like have like noisy background things like crossrail in the background which everyone could probably hear maybe some barking and some wind noise so it really sounds terrible digging a big hole aren't they steve digging a big hole it's cost a lot of money that sort of thing still cheaper than um the track and trace app nick oh it's a bargain God. in comparison incredible <laughs> but yeah it's lovely i got on the train i had a falafel wrap steve i saw human people on the train i got a bit frightened on the tube it's a bit strange on the tube isn't it oh my god it was weird there's so many people on there compressed into such a small space uh, and, and relatively though the tube's incredibly spacious to normal i wasn't sure about the etiquette either like as i got on now? and there were people sitting down and i thought it's, oh, it's a brave a new there. world it's a brave there's new a world there. and i thought i was about to sit in it and i thought oh my god i'll have to sit in between two people in yeah. close proximity so i didn't well it's strange isn't it we've got a re-established i mean brits are pretty bad at like communicating anyway and now and now we've got this extra reason not to like like hug people or extra barrier <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so, listeners, so I think what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to crack on and have a bit of chitter-chatter. We've got a few around. different sites, and we've got a bit of science at each site, yep. and we're going to see how it goes, and then Absolutely. we're going to have a beer. Wonderful. What a Happy day, days. Steve. Bring it on. Science shed. We're in the science shed. Science shed. We're in the science shed. Come on, Steve. Bunsen. Burner. Dolly. Internal. Combustion. Why do we need? Petri. Dishes. Oscar. Bay. Isaac. Newton. Transplanting. Where are we? We're at the monument. We're at the monument. Tell me what you can see, Steve. Oh, well, so we're standing uh, right by the River Thames in front of like, a massive phallus with a, go- a gold top phallus. Is I'd what call we it a, a, a massive erect column. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're, so the mon- we're at a monument. Um, Describe what you see, Steve. Well, what, it's what? a big stone... Uh, column on on standing on a big square bit of stone and on the top of it there's a kind of golden thistle that's that um, is kind of glistening in the in the April sun in London um, looks a bit looks a bit scuzzy actually it's covered in fine London dirt it's could do with a bit been, of a scrub it's been done up quite recently well they haven't done a very good job <laughs> have they Nick they it's haven't done grime. it does it's not pass the Steve Lee school of cleaning <laughs> they would fail it's actually on top it's, a, it's like it's an urn with especially flames coming out of the urn on top right yeah, so this is the monument, and this was built um, in the in the late seventeenth century, and it's it was to commemorate the Great Fire of London, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah. That's about all I know about it. Do you know how high it is? Wait, in meters. Have a guess. It's probably in feet, though, isn't it? Because it's probably something meters, to do. Meters. Meters. Uh, I reckon that is about. How many elephants? Uh, so, I reckon it's about one hundred and seventeen meters. Oh, that's where sixty-one meters. Ah, okay, completely. Sixty-one wrong. meters tall. It's actually the same. Um, 
height in metres as the distance that the monument is from where the fire broke out, Pudding Lane. So oh, right, so if it, if, it fell meters, o- if it fell over, it, it, would, would, it would bang into pointing the... Pointing into Pudding Lane. It would be pointing into Pudding Lane. Well, the top would be at actually, Pudding Lane. Actually at the... Yeah, I don't at know the, which at way the baker. Is, I don't know which way it is. But Why anyway, didn't they yeah. just build it on top of the bakery? It's a good question. I don't know. Maybe there was another. There was some of the. I hate built. stories like that because you're just like there must <laughs> like oh, oh well, we couldn't get it near. So we had to find a site well, near it. It's probably like the two the two people that designed it are quite wacky. So obviously you've heard of Sir Christopher Wren. Oh yeah, he's a he's a big gun. Big. What did he do? Sir Christopher Wren designed. He was an architect and a builder. He was like number one architect. Mac Daddy. He? He's like yeah. Norman Foster. St Paul's Cathedral. Yeah. Yeah, that's a biggie, isn't it? St Paul's. That's pretty good. Yeah, whispering, whispering, ga- whispering mode gallery. So after the Great Fire of London, which actually destroyed about four fifths of London's buildings, were burnt to the ground by it. Jesus! Do you know how many people died? I don't know. Six. That is amazing. No one died. They all. I alive. know now What's that the, the only building that's allowed to have a wooden roof is the Shakespeare's Globe is that because true? of the Great Fire. Crikey! Yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, but it was built after the Great Fire of London and it was designed actually not just by Christopher Wren but Robert Hooke, who wasn't really credited Ooh, for it. Ooh, Robert Hooke, right? FRS. Robert He's a bit Hook. hero, hero of Tell mine. Tell me a bit about Robert Hooke, Steve. Well, he was like, he, he wrote a book, famously wrote the book. He's called the kind of the grandfather of microscopy. Oh, the granddaddy. Wrote, yeah, he wrote a book called Micrographia, which is um, uh, one of the first um, uh, texts where people actually bothered to kind of study in detail the microscopic and also the 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 the, um, the, the uh, astronomic. So you like you like do these incredibly ornate, uh, detailed drawings about this. So you know that kind of in your mind. If you think about that drawing of a flea, yeah, it's yeah. in your head. I you don't know where it. it's come from. Yeah. It's kind of quite yeah. ornate. It's kind of line drawing that's graved into that's kind of that's kind of like like um, peeled into copper by Robert Hooke. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's beautiful. It was like a proper coffee table book in the late 17th century as well. Like Samuel Pepys described it in his diary. Did he really? I he didn't know He said it was that. the most ingenious book. The most ingenious yeah, so that's book. That's, anyway, what I, that's what I say when I read your papers, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's a, he's a big guy. He was a big guy, but he was kind of like, we don't know too much about Robert Hooke because um, he was a big enemy of Isaac Newton who became very powerful and actually expunged. Actually, it's thought if that he got rid of his portraits. I, so I was very lucky. I got invited to um, Oxford University at Christchurch right. College because that's where Robert Hooke was a fellow at Oxford and to give a talk on the 350th anniversary of the publication of Micrographia. Goodness gracious yeah, me, what an honour. It's an incredible <laughs> honour. Um, and um, wait, I had a point here rather than just showing off. Uh, <laughs> but you forgot what it is. <laughs> um, so I gave this talk. Right. And there, there was a proper like science historian. He was like a crazy guy, ex- exactly as you'd expect an Oxford historian to be. Like, yeah. Bow tie, slightly stooped, crazy wild hair, incredibly animated. And he gave this kind of in- really interesting talk about the life of. He's written a book about the life of Robert Hooke. And so when I was like introducing my like talk, I had a little picture. I just stole off of the Wikipedia article oh, yeah, yeah. the picture of Robert Hooke. Right. That guy, the guy stood up. He was angry, Nick. He was extremely irate. He goes, that is not a picture of Robert Hooke. (laughs) And then I got like a 10-minute lecture in front of like probably 100 people while I was waiting to start my lecture about how how he knew that that wasn't a picture of Robert Hooke. So if you go to the Wikipedia page, that is not him. He did not look like that for exactly the reason. You need to edit that page. You need to edit the page. That's true, but it's for exactly the reason that you said that he was he was hated by Isaac Newton, and he was, Isaac Newton was such a mafia don yeah. that he could just erase people. In the, imagine imagine if he was on Instagram now, yeah. he'd have billions of followers. <laughs> but anyway, Hooks 
But we all know Hooke's name because of Hooke's law, that spring experiment mm. when you dangle weights off a spring and you measure the extension of the spring. Everyone well, does it at school. We did it, I did it at school. Maybe people don't do it anymore. You do. He's also a, he, he was a diarist as well, but he was much more pithy in his diary than Peeps was. And he used to write frequently about... <laughs> I bet you like that, he don't you? He recorded every masturbation and orgasm he had as well. Ah. And he had a special symbol did in he block his diary for, for an orgasm, which was the symbol for Pisces, which apparently is like a Venus and Cupid symbol. Fair anyway, enough. he's a weird guy, yeah. right? And he was a scientist, a very um, prominent scientist. Very much so, he yeah. W- he he was arguably the p- the person who conceived the monument, and we don't know for definite. And it's actually not just a monument; it's a scientific instrument. Did ah, you know I think I did know. There used to be optics in it, didn't there? So it was designed as a telescope, and basically what Hook was doing, he had some. It wasn't a telescope; it was like a periscope, wasn't it? No, it was a telescope. Oh, okay. It was so actually intended to look at the heavens. Yes. Yeah, so ah. basically. Hooke had been interested for some time in the heliocentric model of the universe. It was still a little bit controversial, even in the Mm. 17th century. And one way in which you could prove that the Earth was moving was to use parallax. So what you do there is the Earth moves around the sun by about 93 million miles times two. So that's the distance between the furthest points of its orbit on either side. And parallax allows you to see shifts in the stars because it's a relative difference in position. It's like when you open and close one eye. Yeah. Your left eye is further to the left than your you right eye. You see a slightly eye. different picture you and your brain interprets the distance away. Exactly. It allows yeah. you to see 3D. But anyway, you can use that technique to check whether or not you're moving in relation to other things. Okay. So he wanted to try and measure parallax. He'd been doing it for ages at Gresham College, which is where the Royal Society was originally based. Right. Actually not too uh, far from here at all. Just a no, little bit no, north no, of here. Actually survived the Great Fire of London, by the way. It's actually where the you know the NatWest building Ooh, is. Oh, tell you what, that couldn't have gone down well with the clergy, could it? <laughs> if like the, o- the the only institution of learned society is one of the buildings that survives, exactly. they probably didn't like that. Yeah, probably not. But anyway, the NatWest building's there now. Okay. You know that big tower, Tower Forty Two. Yeah. It's actually shaped. If you look at it from above, it looks like the NatWest symbol. Yeah. That's oh, I didn't know Gresham that. College okay. Was. Anyway, oh, okay. He set up a telescope there over two floors, something like thirty-six feet in length. Yeah. lenses at either end to try and measure parallax but the problem so, was so I'm looking at the build, I'm looking at the, the monument now next so you're telling me they're like all the way along the, the big tube the big column the big shaft of the phallus there were lenses all the way down there like a massive telescope not just quite. looking directly was, up not quite there was one at the top one at the bottom and the reason that he designed this as a telescope was because in Gresham College it was made of wood so it used to warp and move all the time yeah so that was a problem we couldn't measure parallax so this was kind of like designed. Oh, so it wasn't stable enough. It wasn't he, stable enough. He needed a heavier, heavier, heavier yeah. telescope. So they made this. He made this with Christopher Wren. There's 800 cubic meters of Portland stone building in this, and it's totally, as you say, hollow at the middle, from the top to the bottom. Uh-huh. And originally there was a, uh, a set of lenses right at the top and a set of lenses right at the bottom, and the idea would be that you would look up into the stars and you'd look at this star called um, Gamma. What was it called? Gamma Draconis. Right. Which is a star about 150. Uh, light years away, very bright star, yeah. constellation Drago. And you look at uh, the stars around it. Look at it. the movement, and then at diff- different times of the year, you could measure the parallax, basically. Right. Because it's a straight telescope, and it's uh, and that particular star passes directly overhead at That's certain so times cool. of the year. Right. So that was his idea. So, like, so the stars directly above it, you look at, and the idea is, so if it, it, say for the sake of argument, the stars directly above the monument, and the idea would be if you go to the other one yep. and had a look at that one, it wouldn't quite be over the top of it. I think something along those lines, okay. yeah, it shift in movement to something else. Right. Yeah, there right. was a parallax, so there's a bit of a shift in yeah. movement. Um, anyway, basically it didn't work. 
<laughs> the problem is, like, if you notice that it's really noisy here, it's pretty loads noisy, of yeah. traffic. Yeah, it's exactly like that back in the sixties. So just everything wobbled too much. There was loads of horses and carts moving past, all other kinds of things as well. So it just didn't. Well, work. it's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, they probably didn't understand much about the material properties. Because the intuition, isn't it, to think to make if you want something to not wobble, is to make it heavy. Yeah. Right. But actually, it depends upon the frequency of the wobble that you care about. And actually, what you probably wanted is you, you normally need to make things stiff, not heavy. Right. Right. And it normally, st stiffness correlates with heaviness. So what you should have been making it is out of carbon fiber. Then really? it would have been fine. If no problem at all. they thought about that. They needed me. I mean, they, they had problems Joker. enough with Portland. They had, to, they had to stop other people using Portland stone just so they had enough to build this. Is that the kick by like that much. Doesn't mean like that. Eight hundred cubic meters. That's okay, quite a lot. That's quite a lot of keep. Yeah, but look stone. at it now. I mean, it's I mean, it's a pretty big building, but it's not as big as the shard. Well, I suppose so. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> what can you do? Anyway, so there you go. That's one of the one of the kind of seventeenth um, uh, century's foremost scientific instruments. It's almost like the Hubble telescope of its time. That's very cool. Do you want to do you want a Robert Hook quote that I have memorized? Go for it. So, he uh, so Robert Hook was um, uh, credited uh, with after micrographia. Uh, there was an alter there was a there was a new new killer block a, a, a Dutch scientist called Robert Van Leeuwenhoek who's credited with detecting bacteria, and Robert Hooke tried to repeat Van Leeuwenhoek's experiments, and so he went down to the river and and Van Leeuwenhoek said, look, no worries, go away, go to the Thames, you'll see these little things moving about. If Calling you build them tiny things, tiny things, they call them animalcules, right? Right. So he brought the animalcules, but so he went to the Thames, got some got some water, went back to the Royal Society, put them on his microscope. Robert Hooke was a real microscope maker, and he said, and he tried to see him, couldn't see him, couldn't find him, Nick. And so at the time, he published a thing saying, um, he said, uh, uh, let me just get this right. Well, I have to edit this. Uh, he said, um, uh, shit. Wait there one sec. He, he said, he said the following. He said that. The, that so he published this, right? So first of all, he didn't like, he didn't believe him. He couldn't repeat it, and he wanted to kind of scathe him in, in the literature. So he said, uh, it, it, "It's so." He said, "I conclude either that Holland is more proper for the production of little creatures than England, or that he could tell a lie." <laughs> all right, okay. Well, there you go. Anyway, um, anyway, so from the big to the small, the monument, and we can both agree that's pretty big. Pretty big. Cool. Good. <laughs> Steve, here we are. So Nick, I feel a bit of a dick. I'm walking. Pardon? I feel a bit of a dick. Yeah, we've got microphones. We're just, we're just walking so through was, London with some microphones. So, listeners, I was trying to convince Steve that we should use mobile phone microphones, but no. Steve's got a fancy wireless set from Apple, which the sound quality is really poor. I've got an old knackered set, which Look, my, we all which, know that the my wife lent me, no. which sounds perfect. It does sound actually surprisingly good. But the reason that people listen to our podcast, Nick, is not beca it's because of the high quality or, or like audio. I think you're probably right. But anyway, we, so we've come over London Bridge from the monument. And we're just walking at the moment. Just come down Great Maze Pond and we're walking oh, past Guy's There's a hospital. French bulldog. French bulldog outside the there's hospital. There's a French there, bulldog and oh. there's a, a chap playing a harmonium. Do you remember harmoniums? Yeah, I do. My cousin had one. They're like... Kind of well, like you played them at school, I remember. Did you? At infant school. You have a pipe. And you basically it's blow, like a little blow, keyboard. It's like a kind of glorified mouth organ. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, you can probably hear some of that in the background. A couple of um, undesirables next to us on the street. We'll avoid that. It looks like yeah, a okay. fight breaking out. Lovely. 
Anyway, um, yeah, we're at Guy's Hospital. This is so, Steve. This is where I did my PhD. I know you tell me this every time we're here. I know. You, I know. you, you, you look back at your time quite fondly, don't you? I did. Here. I was. It was a very. Um, I mean, the, doing a PhD was. I found that pretty hard. But um, uh, but I had a, it, my times were happy. I was really enjoying my life. But anyway, here we are. We're what as opposed to now, when you're miserable? Well, you're just a bit more kind of like you know in your twenties. Yeah. You know, you're living in a shared house. Footloose and fancy free. Drinking cans every night, wanging them in the fireplace. No difference to now. Exactly. Right, anyway, yeah, yeah. So we're wandering, wandering through the streets, looking a bit weird because we're holding microphones, getting funny looks. We are, but never mind. Anyway, I've, I've brought you here, Steve, because I wanted to give you a quick nugget about some stuff that happened at this location. So this right. is Guy's Hospital. When I was doing my PhD here with a guy called John Pickett. You did your PhD here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, there was a room at the end of the corridor yeah. where John Pickett was. He was my, my supervisor. And this chap, our elderly chap, would shuffle in occasionally. Energetic, academic? spry chap. Academic. Mm-hmm. He had a little sign on his door. It was like a broom cupboard. Professor yeah. Harry Keane. Okay. But I never really... Professor Keane. Professor Keane. Didn't really know who he was, but he... Um, so we're looking at... If anyone's never... But we should just explain what Guy's Hospital looks like. So it's a big, tall, ugly 70s concrete building with kind of... It looks a little bit like it could be in some kind of worn, t- war-torn Eastern European country. <laughs> uh, it's not a beautiful building. It's something um, Soviet about it. Yeah, it? very, very, very communistic. Um, but we actually... We podcasted from the 26th floor there a few yeah, times, didn't we? Yeah, a few times, yeah. Yeah. It's actually been cleaned up a lot. It used to be a lot dirtier than that. I like the way that's always your excuse for things, isn't it? Like <laughs> it's like it's crap, but it used to be worse. So anyway, it's one of the best teaching hospitals in the UK. Oh no, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm not so taking away. And and just I'd rather have an ugly building and a good hospital absolutely. than vice versa. Just going back to Harry Keane, so yeah. didn't really know who he was until really until he died. I hadn't really read about him, and my John Pickup, my old boss, wrote his obituary. Right. And he was involved in four quite major findings at this here at this very place relating to diabetes. That's very cool. I mean, he was, first of all, do you, you know insulin is what diabetics rely on every day. It helps That's right, diabetics yeah. control Millions of people, probably billions of people. Yeah, do you know how it was initially made and isolated? Uh, I don't know, so insulin's like a protein, isn't it? Protein. So, so it, um, is it made in bacteria? Well, no, initially it was actually isolated from, from pigs and animals. So they just ground up pancreases, yeah. yeah. Until, what you're saying, the first recombinant yeah. insulin was produced in bacteria. So they took the gene for insulin, which is a human gene mm. put it in some bacteria and they they were able to get back this doesn't always work but in this case bacteria can produce insulin this was in the early 80s about 1982 it's clever isn't it like you yeah. basically just the instruction to build a protein that bacteria would never do Incredible. it doesn't it's just got it's just reading a little instruction manual yeah. a genetic instruction manual and we just we hijack it and tell it to so like it's used to making like you know victoria sponge cakes exactly. and then we tell it to make a scone and yeah. it doesn't normally make scones no. but it did it anyway absolutely Anyway, Harry Keane was involved in the first trial of the recombinant, and he was the first person. He injected himself with it. No way! Yeah, the first person to receive. Was he diabetic? No, he was oh, just a. He just gave it a go. Professor. Just try it out. He wanted to check it before he put it in one of his patients. Wow, that's yeah. proper science. He famously isn't it? described his patients as the collaborators rather than the victims. Ah, <laughs> that makes me that makes me warm and tingly yeah, inside. That's one thing he was involved in. The so other okay, thing so he, he he was the first. He did the purification of the No, no, he wasn't involved in it. Oh. He was just a very prominent guy in the field of diabetes. Uh, okay. He was one of the teams selected to administer the first And this guy is a particularly, uh, is, is that a particular area of uh, strength, is di- diabetes yeah, research? Yeah, there's a big diabetes unit there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, another other th- this is going back all the way to the 60s. 
Yeah. So in the 60s, actually, he was involved in a study called the Bedford Study. Right. So he suspected that there were lots of undiagnosed people with diabetes in the community. Mm-hmm. He convinced um, the whole population of Bedford to leave uh, a little pot of urine on their doorstep <laughs> in the morning. When was Got this? Cub, cub Scouts and Girl Guides to pick them up. To Whoa. measure, so about 73% of the population, this was in the 60s, so he suspected there was a lot of undiagnosed diabetes in so, Bedford. Uh, so you got, so you got a letter, out. think about that, right? <laughs> you got a letter saying some some knobhead in London yeah. wants you to piss in a cup yeah. and leave it on the front doorstep yeah. and a load of girl guides yeah. is going to come and pick it Absolutely. up. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, and so there was what do people think? They were into it, man. They wanted to find out. 73% of the population of Bedford agreed and did it. 73%. Wow. More than people who normally vote in an election. Twice as many people typically well, go. Yeah. Local election, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, so and he did find so there was something like 250 or 300 people who did have type 2 diabetes undiagnosed. So that gave an in insight into how many people in the country are living with undiagnosed Most diabetes. diabetes. That's wow. Cool. That's the other thing. Another one um, was something called microalbuminuria. So Don't you know what that means. No. So people who have persistent high blood sugar um, often get. Uh, damage in their small blood vessels, so things like their eyes, the back right. of the eyes. So this is what we spoke about before, that essentially sugar is toxic in, high, is in, toxic, in, high, in, high, in high concentrations. It is, it is. And so it can actually do damage to your body yeah. if, it's not, if it's not removed. It can damage your kidneys, yeah. where you've got lots of small blood vessels. That's one of the signs that you can measure. He was with the first group who found that measuring protein in urine was diagnostic for having Boom. kidney wow. damage and diabetes. So that's so all how did, they, how did they diagnose it? Was it just clinically diagnosed or prior Well, they didn't that? know until you start to have downstream kidney dysfunction. Right. So microalbuminuria, you sort of pick up before people have got any clinical manifestations of right. symptoms. So, so when you go to the doctor and say, like, if you don't do something about your... Do you, well, do you've, got, you've got yeah. diabetes, let's test your eyes, test your kidneys. And when yeah. you test the test of your kidneys, is it's looking at protein microalbuminuria. Wow. That's the other thing. And then the fourth one is insulin pumps. So John Pickup, my old supervisor, was involved in the first insulin pumps which are used in the UK. So Harry Keane was really the first person to do that in the UK. They were first kind of developed Isn't in Harry the US. Harry Keane a footballer? That's Harry Kane. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. Anyway, he was a genial old chap, supposed to be a really nice bloke, So, um, and they achieved a huge amount. And that's, yeah, there you go, guys' hospital. And it all happened here. Diabetes. So he probably had those like eureka moments, you know, where like, like so say for instance, you're trying to figure out a way to diagnose diabetes. And the, the, there was a, that first experiment when that person realised that it was predictive, that it could tell you if you were going to get it. I love those stories. Like that's, that's what I tell or try and excite my students about, is that you're the first person to see something. Yeah. And that happened here. There you go. Even though it's such a horrible looking monolith. That's true. But let's apparently you did your PhD here, didn't you? Yeah, let's move on, Steve. <laughs> Nick. Stephen. We're on the next, the next stop on our scientific walking tour of London. So we've come via, we've come from the monument via Guy's Hospital, and now Steve's taken me down what I can only describe as a quite scutty street that smells of poo. <laughs> it does smell of poo, though. Can it does you smell a bit. It does a bit. Sewer- those, sewage. Those, those Victorians. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we're on Crosby Way, which is Crosby in, Way. which is, which Says is it on the wall opposite. Yeah, and it's because we're at the site of a quite famous scientist where they were born. Really? Yeah. So number forty-four, Crosby Way. Forty-four is we. So then now be across it looks the like road. Flats. Yeah. How long ago was this person born? They were born in eighteen seventeen ninety, I think. Right. So their house is long gone. Yeah, exactly. And we've just got a block of flats with some scaffolding up it. 
Yeah, but I think because we're in quite a seventeen ninety one, quite a desirable area of London. Yeah, they're probably dead expensive those flats, even though I think yeah. they look like where you'd put halfway house type people. Can such a, such a snob, such a snob. No, you can't. No, sorry. There sorry was a f- there in in uh, in eighteen seventy sorry in seventeen ninety one right uh, in in on this very street there's a fellow of the royal future fellow of the royal society was born really Charles Babbage oh Babbage I know Charles I think Babbage. I know he's something to do with computers I believe Char- yeah, so he's probably most famously known for the difference engine which oh, is actually yeah. um, in which is one of the first mechanical computers which actually is in um, the science museum so a it's version like the next built. step up from the abacus. Uh, well, quite. I would say a, a big leap Q-Q, from the okay. from, from the from the abacus. Right, right. You know, it was the precursor to what essentially was used in the Enigma uh, breaking. Was machine. it something to do with logarithms? <laughs> and what is a log? What is, what is a, log? a log? What do you mean? What is a log? GCSE maths. The power to which you have to raise a value in order to get it. A power to which you have to raise a value in order to get it. Yeah. And then my brain just collapsed in on itself. <laughs> <laughs> let's not do. <laughs> let's not do a story. Well, well Charles Babbage. He was not only a mathematician and, a, and an engineer. He's really a polymath, right? He was one of those people that kind of jack of all trades. He's got a really interesting life. They, they all were back in them days. Partially, but he, in yeah, particular, he tried. He ran. Shit, so he he ran know everything really rapidly. <laughs> well, he ran for the political office and Did lots he? of things unsuccessfully. So he wasn't like a kind of because you think mathematicians, they're all going to be like. <laughs> well, he was par- <laughs> partially, partially that. So he was. Um, he went to. He went to Cambridge. Oh to right. Trinity College to study okay. m- study science yes. to su- sorry, study maths. Yes. Um, uh, he was, and it's quite interesting. So he um, he defected from Trinity. So Trinity, if you don't know, is the is the richest of the Cambridge colleges. I didn't know that. And they're extremely That's famous for mathematicians. Are they? Trinity has famously more Nobel laureates than France. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, like, that is impressive actually, because France is a big country. Is that where uh, like Stephen Hawking was and people like that? Stephen Hawking wasn't at Trinity, no. no but but um, uh, Martin Rees, the former astronomer royal, he I was at Trinity. Him. Yeah. Yes. Um, anyway, so he went to he studied studied um, maths yeah. um, uh, at um, at, Cam- at Cambridge, and then he moved for for some unknown reason to um, to Peterhouse, which is another college right. um, where he where he graduated first in maths. Yeah. Right? So, so just. So he's a successful guy. So was was he born into? Was he born rich? Y- yeah, his dad's really rich. So this was a posh area. Then. Very posh. Um, really? And he, well, he w- he was relatively poor for most of his life, right? Because he was like, but his d- daddy looked after him basically. Yeah. And then he died. Um, he then, uh, he, when his father passed away, inherited at the time, which was something, it's the equivalent of a few million quid. So he, yeah, he, in nineteen eighty seven, his dad gave him um, about a hundred thousand pounds, which is the equivalent to about eleven million dollars. Bit like Trump. Yeah, yeah. So, so, <laughs> well, it was quite. So but he was a bit brainier than Trump, right? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. He was a bit brainier than Trump. He, um, he was also quite a bit, a bit of a polemicist, right? right. So he got like angry about different things. Did he? Did he distribute pamphlets? Well, so people did then them days, <laughs> wasn't it? You didn't tweet shit. You pr- 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 printed That's a pamphlet. That's it. I'm so angry. Yeah. An well, anonymous pamphlet, and you spread it around the street. Well, he. Um, so you're like this. So, so in 1812, right, which is when he's at, at Cambridge, he transferred to Peterhouse where he's the top mathematician. Right. Um, he defended a thesis there which was considered blasphemous in the preliminary public disputation. Um, but it's not known whether this was the fact relating to him not seeing the examination. So he was like, it was a bit kind of controversial so even then. he blaspheming by what? His final dissertation was blasphemous. What, it said Jesus is I a I don't know what it said, we don't man. know. Yeah. Um, but... Who on God, that sort of thing. You like this, Nick. Right? So you know, like, being a fellow of the Royal Society is a big deal. Uh, yeah. 
He was a fellow. Guess how old he was when he got elected to oh, a fellow of the Royal Society. I don't know, Steve. Twenty-five. Bloody hell! Yeah. Well, like I said, no one knew shit in them days. You could, <laughs> you, you could, you could know everything quite rapidly. I'm not yeah. impressed. He's quite an interesting character. Um, he, yeah, as I said, he kind of did lots of things. He, um, uh, he worked with Michael Faraday, um, various other important people. But the thing I wanted to talk to you about him, which is I think why you're quite like him, Nick, is he wrote a um, right. So in 1830, he got he was a bit. Dis- so he'd been a he'd been a fellow of the Royal Society for a while at this point, right? right. And so he kind of got a bit frustrated with science right, he's right. Just, he was seeing the kind of what he considered the the decline of the scientific method and the quality of science in oh England, no right? they were around then as well were they he wrote this he wrote a 130 page book right, right called reflections on the decline of science in england and some of its causes oh no so this is in april of 1830 you like this the dedication at the beginning he's quite an interesting kind of mysterious man i've read th- i read this most of this this morning right so the, his, de- his dedication to the start of this book right so imagine that right that you know the, the, the royal society is a very powerful um institution you know yes. the first learned society uh, of its kind in the world yeah. and by that time it was it, you know had a big uh, had a, like royal charter and had lots of money and very powerful influential kind of thing um and here comes babbage babbage comes out and he says that he suddenly he's like he's, he's he's slagging him off he does he's not happy with the royal society and he wrote he wrote a 130 page book about what was wrong with the royal society in particular wow. yeah right what was t- his principal concern well lots of things i'm going to go through a couple of them <laughs> Um, but you know, he wrote particularly the, the the president of the Royal Society at the time. He really didn't like. Oh no! Did not like him at all. Why not? And then he goes through all of the uh, all of the finances of the Royal Society, yeah. and he like um, he said, um, <laughs> "Hello, a dog's come to it say hello to us." With a hello. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a puppy. <laughs> hello, mate. You don't get you don't get that in in, uh, in um, Brian Cox's TV shows, yeah. do you? Um, uh, yeah, so the Royal Society incredibly powerful and kind of prominent um but because he was independently wealthy doesn't care and he's already been a fellow for a long time so here's his dedication had i intended to dedicate this volume i should have inscribed i should have inscribed it to a nobleman whose assertions in promoting every object that can advance science reflect luster upon his rank but the kindness of his nature might have been pained at having his name connected with these strictures perhaps too severely just. I shall therefore abstain from mentioning the name of the one who I feel has commanded my esteem and respect. So <laughs> those sentences are so long that my brain can't hold enough it's attention. Bit, it's a bit weird, out. isn't it? So what's he saying then? He's dedicated. So this this book is called Reflections on the Decline of Science in England. And he's right? dedicating it to someone he won't name who he doesn't like. And who is it? We don't know. You don't know? No. He's just saying it's like a poison pen letter to an unknown person. Exactly, yeah. He knows who he is, doesn't he? Oh, the person who reads it, yeah, yeah. knows who it is. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, the, the, he specifically goes after the money of the role. So he talks about like all of the... all of the. Uh, let me find well, it. Well, I hate clubs. And I'm kind of with Babbage on this. Yeah. Because they're a bunch of elitist... You, do you know what I mean? Well, he starts like, hey, okay, welcome to our well, club. He starts off talking about uh, comparing the other learned societies at the time. So right. there's obviously the Royal Society of Edinburgh and Dublin, but there's also ones in France and other places. Um, and and he, look, he asks about the, the, the relative number of fellows right. in those places. And basically he says that, like, when he goes through them, and he's like, one in 63,000 people in the UK are fellows of the Royal Society. And, he's, and in, in Babbage's opinion, that, is too, that number is, w- is way too high. Oh, right, so yeah. they're too inclusive. Yeah, and in right. <laughs> too inclusive. And in, uh, in France or something, it's about four or five times fewer people right okay so so they were saying so he, that was one of his arguments he was going through an, you know, too many people data, okay too number one too many people 
and then he was talking about like what they spend their money on right, right. and so talk chiefly is about publishing the royal society the philosophical yeah. transactions of the royal society the world's first scientific journal absolutely in that uh, the, if you've ever seen one of those or seen a picture of them they're quite on the, the front cover of them is quite ornate it's quite like it's kind of inscribed the in gold. piece it's beautiful yes yeah. um Babbage does not like that. Because it's too... He worked too it out. 2,000 quid a year it cost to do that. On little artists. 2,000 quid, which is about 300,000 pounds in today's money. It's a money. waste of money, mate. That's what he said. Yeah. He said, why are we spending it on that? Absolutely. And at the same time, the, the on, on the offices of the president of the Royal Society, who was allowed to go and give talks on behalf of the Royal Society, they spent 4,634 pounds per it. year. So that's Crikey. like half a million quid on giving, on t- in today's money, of like giving lectures. That's a lot of cash, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I can think of other institutions today who still do that sort of stuff. I'm not going to name them either. <laughs> but there definitely is, uh, you know, some people do like to waste a load of money. But it's interesting you should be saying exactly the same things in 1830 that we talk about even now. Yeah, and, he's, and so one of the things he says is that, that, guess how much? If you were a fellow of the Royal Society right. in 1830, you had, you had to pay fees yeah, to be a member. Subs. subs. Guess how much? Oh, like in today's equivalent money? Well, we could do both, but yeah. Uh, like... I don't know, maybe a hundred pounds. It's fifty. In it was today's fifty money. quid then. Oh my god! So that's per like year. It's like about f- several thousand pounds, probably. Yes, yeah, about five grand. Five um, grand. Yeah, something like that. But how did? And ba- Babbage argued that actually that was exclusionary, and you were just letting the rich boys in. Well, that right? sounds right. I mean, yeah. especially if you're getting quite a lot of people, because you can just pay to be involved, right? <laughs> well, partially, yeah. I mean, it's, so he, he argues. So the in, there's a whole. He explains how you're elected a member of the a fellow of the Royal Society, and that, to be honest, it's exactly the same today. Is it? it hasn't changed. Basically, two other the people have to nominate you. Oh right. Um, and in you the, apply in the f- as fellows. They're already yeah. fellows. Yeah. Okay. So um, two fellows have to say. Oh, this chap, he could join, or this lady, she could join our club. Yeah, I don't think there was any women at that time, but yeah. Um, but like, you know what I'm saying, though. Yeah, like, no. that happens these Today. days. Yeah, well, right. you apply now, but, pe- but fellows have to agree with your nomination right, and right, let you right. in. Um, and he said that, oh, well, you're, we're just selecting for the rich guys. And he was one of the rich guys at the time. He said it used to be, up until well, like five years previous to that, it was £4 a year. Yeah. Right, I mean, that's, that seems a little bit more manageable. Yeah, it's about 50 quid. Yeah, yeah. fair play to him, man. Yeah. So they'd, so basically, they're a racket. <laughs> they're a racket. <laughs> and, I mean, God knows well, how much is, money. Were they I spending their money on, like, cocaine and hookers and things like that as well? well? This, this, is, this was the... That was probably unrecorded in the accounts. <laughs> Miscellaneous <laughs> expenses. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but he does, he does through, because obviously they're, it's all pub, they're all published at the time, so he does go through them. Um, you know, works it out. I, I, I just find it goes... The oh, let's go. The expense, the expense of engravings, the great expense of the engravings which adorn the volumes of the philosophical transactions is not sufficiently known. That many of those engravings are quite essential for the papers they illustrate, and those papers that are fit for the transactions, I do not doubt. But some inquiry is necessary when such large sums are expended. I shall endeavour, therefore, to approximate the sums these engravings have cost the Royal Society. So he goes through, like you know, it's actually quite a fair kind Gosh. of. It's a polemic. But why couldn't they write short sentences in those days? Again, <laughs> like as a zoned out. So just to finish, the, the, this, this was published. And you can imagine it raised quite a bit of a stink, right? Particularly to all the other people. Um, so, uh, the, so he wrote, so, the, so his, his book, just to remind everyone, his was called uh, on, the, on the Decline of, uh, sorry, um, his reflections on the decline of science and some of its causes in England. And, and to, to complete that, Michael Faraday wrote a reply. He was like, Babbage, you've, you've gone too far this time. Oh, mate. really? Right? Faraday was kind of a man of the people, though. He was. Son of a Do you know what his was called? No. His, re- his response to the no. polemic. What? On the alleged decline. On of the science. alleged. <laughs> <laughs> On the alleged decline of science in England. So what yeah. was Faraday coming back with? Yeah, we should blow the uh, money. Because <laughs> was he a member of the... Was he an FRS then? Because he was in the Royal Institution, right? Yeah. No, no, he, he certainly was. And I think, you know, that what he was saying is that 
exactly as we say today, there's people today that would argue exactly the same about the decline of science in England. Well, it's too easy and it's all about a ra racket and it's about people, you know, trying to be su successful rather than really caring deeply about the kind of innate wonders of the world. And it, they're exactly the same arguments that Babbage was doing a hundred years ago. Oh, uh, right. So he's like the modernist. Exactly. Oh, good for Faraday. I always liked Faraday. He's like a man of the people because he kind of worked up from rags to riches. He was a famously a, a bookbinder's apprentice, wasn't he? That's right, And yeah. basically he managed to make it to the top and then outshine Humphrey Davy, his kind of mentor. Contemporary. Yeah, 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 good guy. Yeah, yeah. good oh, for him. Well, so but that's good for Babbage as well. So it's good to have a discussion, isn't it? Good to have a discussion. <laughs> good to have a discussion. Just publicly in front of everyone about how much money you're wasting on expensive <laughs> engraving. So nothing's really changed, to be honest. No. Anyway, Babbage. Well, listeners, we have arrived at a roundabout. Nick brings me to all of the most romantic of spots. You took me to, a minute ago, a rancid street that smelt completely of human excrement. And you've brought me to a roundabout with a load of dilapidated like closed down buildings in the middle of like a roundabout you just so brought me to a roundabout steve we're at the roundabout this is called this is called st george's circus st george's pretty shitty circus it is isn't it <laughs> there's no big top or anything so looking around us we've got a busy junction with roads going off in five isn't different it? directions yeah it's obviously a, a nexus point isn't it steve a nexus a node well, yeah. actually, the roads here radio radiate out to Waterloo Bridge, Westminster Bridge, and Blackfriars Bridge. Mm. So it's kind of like a sort of a, a nodal point for the bridges of London right. in that area. So if they're like computational scientists, they'd love something like this. They'd love it, yeah. yeah. Highly connected. They'd nerd out about that. It's pretty... Uh, There's also a French bulldog over there, look. Another oh, one. Another one. There's, There's such good dogs. problem with London. I love the dogs. Look, look at, at that dog. man holding it. He looks exactly like the sort of chap who'd be having a bulldog as well. How dare you. He's like you, but overweight. <laughs> It's coming this way. Should we be quiet about it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, so we're at St. George's Circus. So, yeah. Steve... So what's this got to do with science? This all, we here? all used to be fields around here. <laughs> I remember in Zoll. Just it was field. all fields. Right. Yeah, so this area of London, so uh, as I've said, we're, we're just a little bit south of the River Thames here. We've walked along Borough Road from the London Bridge area. Yeah. And we're in a place that used to be occupied by something called St. George's Fields. St. George's Fields. Yeah, it was all fields around here. And actually when... Um, uh, so when we, how far are we going back? 1600s. Oh, so a long time ago. Okay, well, well actually, even 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 later than that. So the early, just before the Victorian period, late 1700s. Okay. Still all fields. Anyway, right. so, um, yeah, and actually this was kind of, uh, first of all, after the Great Fire of London, this is where a lot of the refugees were housed in tents around here. Really? So a lot of London, yeah, came down here. They were in tents. They didn't have their homes. They were burnt down. It's also a place where when King Charles II... Came founded back to the, the Royal throne. Society. Yeah, the Restoration, 1660. Yeah. They had a big banquet celebration here. With Parte. Tents. Can so you imagine it? So this is like Glastonbury in 1600. Exactly, yeah, yeah. The killers playing on the, on yeah, the pyramid yeah. stage. Yeah, it's all a bit, it would have been green, luscious, meadow-like. It does not look like that now. No, it's very urban. It doesn't smell of poo, though, it's which is a bonus. Yeah. But I quite like it. It's kind of quite, it's yeah. quite, there's quite a lot of space. There's, a, bu there's a bustle. 
yeah, it's dappled sunlight as light passes through the oak tree. Nick didn't do his PhD here, but I'm <laughs> sure he'll say he, di- he did. So this is an auspicious uh, place as well for scientific reasons and in terms of adventure and daring do. <laughs> this is the site of the first female British aeronaut, the first British lady to go into the air. Took wow. off from here in the year 1785. No, that's not true. 1785. Oh, oh, oh but in, a, a, in an air balloon. Exactly. Ah. In an air balloon. Her name was Letitia Ann Sage. Letitia right. Ann Sage. And she went up. What, when, so my, you have to excuse me, my, my aeronautics inf- <laughs> uh, knowledge is poor. When, when were, were is, this, is, this, uh, is this 100 years after we were, men were routinely flying in hot air balloons? No. Or is this relatively soon after the invention of, you know, or the popularization of hot air ballooning? So the first air balloon yeah. was in France, actually. It pioneered in France all the air, air ballooning. Right. And it was two years prior to that. 17 okay, so it's not so soon. 1783, right? And yeah. in 1783, there are a couple of brothers called the Montgolfier brothers. They sound French. They sound French. Ooh la la. And they constructed Did the Did you know what their first names were? Oh, uh, I can't remember off the top of my Pierre. head. Pierre. Jean- Pierre. Jean- Jean-Paul. Jean-Paul. Jacques. Jean-Paul. Jacques. Have you an ascension de la ballon? Actually, the first balloon was called Aerostat Revelion. 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 After the manufacturer of the balloon, Revelion. Ah. Chap called Revelion. Anyway, the peop- the first balloon flight was a hot air balloon made of paper and cotton. Do you know what the first passengers were? Uh, pigs. No. They uh, were sh- animals. Sheep. A sheep, a duck, and a cockerel. You know why? You know, what start, that is the start. Can of you imagine? A joke. What was the conversation? Can you imagine the conversation? All right, we're going up in the balloon. <laughs> <laughs> There's a sheep, a duck, and a cockerel. Strange. Do you reckon? That, I mean, they must have been. Can you imagine them all sitting there looking at each other as the balloon went up? In <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know what they were chosen though? Do you know why they were chosen like a that? A sheep, a cock, cockerel, and uh, what was the other thing? Uh, sheep, a cockerel, and a duck. Why were they chosen? Uh, probably, well, a sheep because it's heavy, I reckon. Not, not the primary reason, but that is also a reason. Um, well, I suppose that the duck is prob- can just fly. Yeah, yeah so it's a model, it's a control. Right. So it's the a duck control like for an animal that can fly. Right, the sheep okay. is like equivalent to a human. Right. It's the same size. Yeah. And, so if it, if, if and the cockerel <laughs> is a bit like a bird, but, but also... Halfway in between. Halfway in between, yeah, the control. So this the control. Is the, uh, right, yeah, so yeah. the idea is, is that if, it, if, if, shit, if shit hit the fan... Then the, the bird just jumps ship, flies home. Yeah. The, the kind of cockerel slowly <laughs> flaps its way to like to, to maiming, and then the sheep's fucked. Yeah, yeah. Totally yeah. ruined. Okay. They, they burnt stuff to get it up in the air. So faggots, little faggots of wood. Right. I hated it. Made of cop. cop. Uh, anyway, so so. That's a great conversation, isn't it? <laughs> like, it, it was these the Frenchmen that put it up? So Frenchmen. Jacques and Pierre were like, "What shall we put?" Jacques have everyone cockerel. Yeah. So that was in um, that was in France. That was in Paris. Um, a bit later on, the same people. So this was the first ever manned flight. And this was also a hot air balloon. Uh, uh, and this was this was in, in October. This, th- so that first flight was in June, June the 29th, 1783. Okay. Then the next flight with a hot air balloon, the manned first manned flight, first ever manned flight. Yeah. Was October that year. Same gang, right? So, so Jacques and Pierre saw that the sheep was fine. Yep. And it was like, well, let's, let's give it a go. Absolutely. Jacques, you and I, let's jump in. Absolutely. So that, that was a chap called Revelion. He was in the balloon, along with a chap called De Rosier and Villette. 
That was October the 19th. That happened in Paris. So that was a tethered flight. Okay. But it was manned. So uh, so, so, so let's, let's skip to the end. Skip to the end. <laughs> <laughs> what, so what happened here? <laughs> well, so this was... Um, so basically there were other hair balloons as well. So hydrogen balloons were the same kind of era. Okay. So the first ever hydrogen balloon was actually 10 days after the first hot air balloon. Also, oh, it was like a bit of a race. Only like a couple of years after hydrogen had first been named, co- named, coined by Lavoisier. And then so hydrogen had been around for like, people had kind of, um, there's an ambulance coming past. Maybe yeah. someone's just fallen out of a hot air balloon. I reckon probably they're going to get that duck. <laughs> they're late for their tea, Steve. <laughs> yeah, right. so hydrogen balloons were about the same time, interestingly. And the first hydrogen balloon was just 10 days after that first hot air balloon flight. Right. That was unmanned. Anyway, later that year, we had manned flights both in hot air balloons and in hydrogen balloons. Okay. The first uh, manned... How do you control the height in a, hot air, in a hydrogen balloon? Ballast. And a valve. You can let so it you out. Let out, but you can't put it in. No, you can't. No, because you have to be a bit careful. Right. So yeah, okay. So the first manned hydrogen balloon flight was in December of that year. 400,000 people watched it. Wow. 400,000. <laughs> that was in Paris, right? In the Jardin de Toilier. Shelf, ben, they, Benjamin French. Franklin was in the audience. Wow, Chap on the, on the American. Cool. Is he on the hundred dollar bill or? I can't uh, remember. Yeah, he's the hundred. Anyway, uh, famous. He was a diplomat. Yeah, he the was Benjamins. in the audience. So that was the first flight. So then people were doing it really nearly. That first flight, um, manned flight of a hydrogen balloon, they flew for two hours for thirty six kilometres. And the chap who's in the balloon, Professor Charles, his ears hurt <laughs> because of the pressure. <laughs> yeah, because of the pressure. Well, yeah, I assume so. Anyway, so there you go. So, but. That became all the rage, and then after that, there were people going and up the people and down. And people in London heard about it. All about it. And so the first, this lady, she was the first aeronaut, female aeronaut. Yep, she was called Letitia Ansage. She was an actress on the stage. Right. And she went so up with a like chap called George Biggin. There are actually supposed to be five of them. Right. But they had to get out the other three because it was too heavy, so they couldn't get off the ground. Oh, so actually, so actually you probably want a woman because they might be a bit lighter. Well, maybe, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure that was the... I'm not quite sure. It's kind of been sort of lost in the obscurities of right. time about how she was invited. But probably anyway. she was a famous actress at the time. Or so a well-known it's, so, so it's a PR stunt, It'd basically. be kind of like Babs, Barbara Windsor, going I, up. I like that. That's the kind of thing that we're talking that's, about. That's your, that's your closest to popular culture <laughs> as you can get. But there's, there's actually a painting of it. So, um, And the painting oh. of it has the obelisk that we're looking at in yeah. the background. So here we are. First ever female aeronaut what was her name uh, Sage Sage Letitia yeah. Sage so her name was Letitia Ann Sage wow that's amazing there you go auspicious Oh, it's Brian. I'm in London, mate. Do you know what, Brian? It's really good to see you. I'm in London. How you been? You know what? I'm bloody scared, mate. Yes, there's a lot of people. There's so many people. Yeah, exactly. I've been in up and down the tube all day. They don't sell Banksy's in the in the in the pub either. I bet there's a pub somewhere that sells a bit of Banksy's. (laughs) Should you try and find one? We can have a go, mate. Anyway, up and down the tube. I don't know how to work them barriers. Like you have to. Like I was trying to stick my whale card in. It didn't work. I could just put what, my bank card what's there. A wha- what's a whale card? A whale card. What's a whale card? It's a rail card. A rail card. Rail card. <laughs> Sorry. Well, bloody hell, mate. Got to speak English. Anyway. Sorry, I thought that was like... Up and down I thought, I thought the w- tunnels. 
Up and down the tube all bloody day, mate. <laughs> all right, have you enjoyed it? What's I've your, loved it. What's your favourite tube line? Oh, the brown one. The brown, really? Bakerloo? I like brown. Oh. <laughs> well, it's like um, brown things are nice, aren't they? Chocolate. Right, okay. I like chocolate. It's like a chocolate. I think about the chocolate line. You right. know, they've got the, 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 the things you hang on to. You can almost lick them, couldn't you? Because you know, lovely I, brown colour, like a dairy it. milk. I wouldn't recommend it, particularly in the COVID world we're currently in. But Brian, I hope you've enjoyed our kind of our walking science tour of London. It's funny I should bump into you down here. It's, it's an incredible coincidence, you know. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, you know, it's almost like you know, like you know, Clark Kent and Superman. Nice like, day though. It's a lovely day. Do anyway, you know mate, I'm gonna go, and I think I'm gonna go to Buckingham Palace and see whether I can see. You know that the Queen. You like the Queen. I'm a big fan have, of the Queen. Have you been watching the Crown? I was very sad about Prince Phil. Were you now? Yeah, you know, he's an old bloke, though. He did a lot of good, though, didn't he? <laughs> Do you know I've met Prince Philip? Have you really? Yeah, I've shaken his hand. Did he say anything bad to you, Yam? No, he didn't. No. no. He, was very, he, was the, he was the kind of perfection of uh, the, the, the perfect picture of uh, dignity. Yeah. It was lovely. Anyway, mate, got to go. See Bye. you later. So, thanks, Brian. And uh, I don't know where Nick's gone to, but if anyone, uh, if you enjoy the science shed and our continuing uh, fumbles around London, uh, you can interact with us uh, via Twitter. So um, I'm at Steve the Chemist. Um, Nick uh, is at the Evans Lab. Or you can tweet us directly at the Science Shed. But until then, uh, we will we'll see you next time. And um, where, where we might not be on a disgusting roundabout with loads of ambulances. But who knows? I found a point of emphasis. Bye.